the guy who's going to be speaking to us today, he was here with us a couple of years ago, but uh, he is a very, very, very close friend of the Chiz family. He uh, was raised with my kids, uh, all kinds of bad things my kids would do with him and he would do with them. Uh, Eric is a, uh, is a man of God. I, I just love this guy. I love his beautiful wife and family, two boys. And uh, so I called him on the phone hoping that he would be able to make this, this Sunday and uh, he made it available for us. So would you please welcome Pastor Eric Hamlin as he comes to speak. Uh, thanks, Pastor. Thank you, Word of Life, for this incredible opportunity. I'm really, really excited to be here. In fact, uh, Word of Life was a church that I grew up in. Uh, I can point out uh, several life-changing moments. I could walk you over to uh, the other campus and show you where I got married. And um, it was right downstairs at the bottom of these stairs that I found out that my wife was pregnant and uh, changed my life forever, for sure. Um, but Pastor Randy uh, was very, very generous talking about uh, my relationship with, with his kids. But I want you to know that uh, he's very integral in my life personally, uh, and it goes back a long, long way. Uh, so before I introduce myself, I want to introduce myself through the lens of my relationship with Pastor Randy. Uh, so many of you don't know, but he was my very first babysitter. My sister and I uh, were, uh, uh, it, we were growing up around here, and uh, he was our first babysitter. We lived to tell the tale, which is very nice. And, Pastor, you, you haven't aged a bit, man, since 1980. That's, that's, uh, that is excellent. Uh, there was a phase where I wanted to be a professional arm wrestler, and uh, Pastor Randy was doing that circuit there. And uh, he let me shadow him a little bit, you know, which is, it was very nice of him uh, to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the big rite of passage uh, growing up is learning how to drive, and I needed to get my road test taken. I didn't have a very good car. So he brought me in his kit car uh, to uh, my road test. I did not pass, but that's okay. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll go from there. You know, in all seriousness, I'm really, really grateful for Pastor Randy and the role that uh, he's played in my life and played in my growth. Uh, my wife, Deidre, uh, and I are on the lead team at Centerway Church in Victor, New York. Uh, we la launched a church last September uh, with a bunch of guys that you probably know, uh, and it's been an incredible journey starting a church uh, in an area that historically has not been receptive uh, to new churches or to the work of God and to the gospel. Uh, God's doing something exciting in Victor, uh, and we are grateful for the influence and the role that Word of Life has played and is playing uh, in that church. Claude and Meredith um, are the lead pastors there, and they send their greetings today. Uh, they'll always be grateful, and we as a lead team will always be grateful uh, for many of you that have supported us, that have prayerfully uh, invested in us, encouraged us all at Centerway. Uh, there are four churches that released um, members of their church to come with us for one year uh, as missionaries to Victor, New York. And Word of Life is one of those churches. In fact, you loaned us 18 of your people. Uh, they've been instrumental in establishing the heart and culture of Centerway. And man, I can't say thank you enough for all that you have done. Uh, and I'm excited for all that God uh, is going to continue to do as we partner together. You know, this morning, uh, I do want to piggyback off of the series that Pastor Randy has just finished up, uh, the Uncertain series. It was an incredible series, was it not? It was uh, really incredible. Let's give God a clap offering for, uh, for all that he's done uh, in our lives in the last few weeks, last few months. Uh, 
the, the thing that God has kind of asked me to share with you today uh, is a message I'm calling on the other side of your if, the other side of your if. And I'm going to explain it, its significance here shortly, hopefully. Uh, but I want to know if there's anyone else that's like me that can uh, relate to how annoying it is that God does not follow your plan for your life. Anyone else relate to that? That's annoying, isn't it? I mean, you understand like... Uh, if I've been telling God for such a long time that if you just do things my way, like everything will go so much smoothly, right, uh, in life. I have this really, really good plan that I've been floating out to God for a while now. Uh, it involves his glory and me in Aruba, you know, and it's not, it's not happening. It's, I've got it all laid out. It's all mapped out. He just has to push the button, right? But it's not happening and uh, it doesn't happen, does it? In fact, God rarely seems to do things the way that we expect him to. He rarely seems to do things the way that we expect him to do them. Uh, an example of that actually happened right here at Word of Life when I was 14 years old. Uh, my mom, who's actually uh, here today, it was a uh, children's church worker, a, a teacher uh, in the Sunday school in the children's church, and uh, she worked with the little ones, the ones that weren't potty trained yet or just about to be potty trained, uh, one, two, three years old. It was a day actually a lot like today. It was nice and it was warm, and that was back before we had a lot of air conditioning uh, in the building. And so we said, hey, let's go outside and do our, our uh, children's church lesson outdoors. It was pretty cool because it was overcast. It wasn't raining, but it was overcast. And uh, we had the story of Noah's Ark all ready to roll. And so me, I'm 14 years old. I'm thinking, hey, if I can't be hanging out with all the pretty girls up in the sanctuary, at least we'll get some pretty cool object lessons out of this. You know, it'll rain right when uh, my mom says the, the floods rose and all that kind of fun stuff. And so I had a plan that God should have adhered to. So we went outside and these little kids were playing duck, duck, goose. And I'm trying to like, you know, keep them all safe and everything. And um, it got really dark really quick. I thought, yes, this is it. You know, it's, it's going to rain. Um, and so we get to the point there where uh, my mom says, God shut the, the boat, the ark up, uh, and the floods rose and the rains fell. And I thought, this would be a great time for a train. You can do it any time now, God. And the cool thing was, it did. I felt uh, this surge of water just hitting me. I was like, wow, that's cool. But the thing was, it was only in one place. It was right here on the back of my shoulder, you know. And right when uh, I knew it was supposed to rain, I was like, what, what is happening? I look over and there's a two-year-old peeing on me, uh, right, right on my shoulder, just potty trained. I, I guess there was a warning that, hey, he's, he's trying to figure out how to do this potty training thing. And um, it was great timing. It was perfect timing. It just was not how I expected it to go, unfortunately. Now, the thing is, is God could have caused it to rain right then and there, actual rain, uh, but instead, of the ultimate object lesson, it was toddler pee, you know? And you're left scratching your head thinking, why God, why would this happen? Why didn't God follow the plan? You could have done something so cool, instead he's just kind of weird and, and kind of hard to make sense of. And I hope you're not thinking this, like, well, 14-year-old Eric, if you would have told him it would have been a great object lesson 25 years from now, I would have said, I smell like pee and there's some cute girls around and I, I don't feel like this, you know? Uh, however, God doesn't do things the way we want him to. In fact, I have a question this morning uh, that I wanted to project today. The question goes like this. What do you do when you disagree with God? What do you do when you disagree with God? I don't mean just when you can't understand God. I don't mean when you're wondering, hey, how is God going to work this out? I mean 
How do you handle those moments when you say, God, if you don't blank, whatever that is, I'm through. I'm through. What's on the other side of your if? What's on the other side of your if? I'm asking this today not because I want to challenge you, but because I want to encourage you. And because I've been asking this a lot uh, of God lately, it's a reality that I've had to face often in my life. And it seems like I continue to face it pretty regularly. Uh, Like I said, I could walk you to the spot where my wife said, uh, we're pregnant and I'm terrified. Uh, And uh, right then and there, I started to dream, dream about what it would be like uh, to have a child and to have kids. My wife and I uh, were trying to have a baby for six, seven, eight years, something to that effect. Uh, And that was the moment where God allowed my dreams to be realized. And then a few months later, uh, there were twins, twin boys, uh, Isaac and Eli. Uh, Eli was born uh, with cerebral palsy and uh, was 35 days in the NICU. Um, he, he can't talk, he can't walk. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of difficulties in his life. And I'm thinking, God, you brought me to this incredible place where finally my, my goals, my dreams, my plans are realized. This is a great gift from you, but you just haven't worked it out the way that I thought you should work it out. And even though he was born with CP, he's an amazing kid. He's, he's healthy now. I appreciate your prayers. Uh, we're very, very blessed to have him. Uh, and I know well-intentioned people say, look how, how many doors it's opened up to you. Uh, we have a lot of influence in uh, the special needs community in, in small pockets here and there around the area. But there are just times where I just want to have a conversation with my boy. You know, he's nine years old now. And uh, he, he does sleep and he, he smiles in his sleep, you know. And I just want to know, what are you dreaming about, buddy? What, what are those dreams that you have, uh, even as a nine-year-old, that you can smile about even though you can't share them with me? Like I said, we're planning a church in Victor, uh, and uh, I left a, a full-time ministry position um, to join the team, to feel like God was calling me there. Uh, I had to take a, uh, a job in school, which was great. I love teaching. I love teachers. Uh, the only problem is the job that I took was with third graders, and I live with third graders. Do you know how chatty third graders are? I, bring a th- I wake up, wake up a third grader, bring a third grader to work with me, talking the whole way. I'm with third graders talking all day. I bring that third grader home talking the whole time. Uh, then we talk about anything else until he goes to sleep. So uh, thank you, God, why can't I work in a library? That would, that would be really, really nice. Uh, you know, trying to find a house, and every time we find the perfect house, we put the offer in, and they say, oh, it just went under contract. Or someone offered $30,000 above asking price. And you know, thinking, God, if you would just let me move to where I want to move and do what I want to do, then you would get ultimate glory and all these great, incredible things would happen. But I'm left with a question, what do I do when I disagree with God? What do I do when I don't like what God is doing? And thankfully, that question has been played out in Scripture on several occasions. And so if you've ever asked that question, we can take comfort in the Word of God today. Uh, The way I want to do this this morning is I want to share with you three stories that are found in God's Word uh, of people who have had the opportunity to disagree with God. But in the end, they've allowed the truth of the gospel of Jesus to change their very identity. And I picked these three uh, stories in particular because uh, it feels like every time we're on the other side of our ifs, God, if you don't do this or if you allow this to happen, uh, it begins to affect three particular areas of our life. It, It affects our head. It affects our mindset. It affects our heart. 
the very seat of our emotions and our compassion, and it affects our hands, the way that we work and we serve God. And so I want to take each one of these stories and tackle a different part of the way that, that our bodies and our minds uh, and our hearts are being impacted by the what-ifs in life and the disagreements with God. Before I do, can we pray? Let me just bow our heads and hearts today. Heavenly Father, I thank you, O oh God, that uh, your power is made perfect in our weakness today. And Lord, I know that as I begin to tackle a subject that may be very raw and emotional and difficult for people in this room today, I pray that the peace of God that passes all understanding would guard my heart, our hearts, and our lives in Christ Jesus. I pray that the, uh, uh, the gospel would take root in fertile soil today. God, you give me the grace to step out of the way and allow your Holy Spirit uh, to speak a word that people need to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want to talk about our head uh, as we start off. In fact, the big idea of my message this morning is found in John chapter 3. Uh, some of us may know the story of John the Baptist. He had been a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, he was uh, dressed weird and he ate weird things and he sacrificed with his life so that he could say, prepare the way for the Lord. And over the course of time, he had built up a pretty serious following uh, as he was pointing people to Jesus. Uh, he'd been baptizing people. People had been coming to know his teaching and, and the power in his baptism. And now a rumor had been spreading that Jesus and his disciples are crowding in on John's territory. And he's asked, how is he going to respond? Let's look at verse uh, 25 of John 3 uh, through verse 30. It's going to be displayed, I believe. It says this, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been set before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then he says something uh, that can be very life-giving or very crushing. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here, John is at a place where Jesus is threatening his very identity. He's John the baptizer. He's John the Baptist. And yet John doesn't react in anger or get defensive about the job that he's doing. He simply points to Jesus. You know, John determines cognitively inside of his mind that Jesus is the point of his life. And when he makes that determination, something amazing happens. He's, he's free. He's free to take a back seat to the, the popularity game, to the politic game, uh, to the game that would say, hey, I need my day in the sun. I need my name to be recognized. He's free from the questions that plague us about why life isn't fair. So we hear something like this. Hey, you've been around longer, but that Jesus guy has, is more popular than you. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. Hey, people are leaving your group and joining his he must increase, I must decrease. You see, when we feel as if God is making the wrong decision with our life, it fundamentally becomes a question of who we see having authority over our life. Are we in charge of our life? Are we determining our steps? Are we saying, God, it is all about you. I want you to increase in my life. I want to take a back seat because I trust you 
with my very life. And that attitude frees us today from the why life isn't fair questions that we have too. It wasn't just John the Baptist, but you and I have those opportunities as well to think those thoughts. I should have gotten the job that I interviewed for. Hey, he must increase. I must decrease. I don't understand why the right person hasn't come along. And am I to blame or is God involved in this in some way? Hey, he must increase. I must decrease. And it's good to know that once John had the right mindset about life, that everything suddenly went his way and all of the good things in life came toward him and he lived the rest of his days in perfect harmony with the people around him. Well, actually, that didn't happen. That's what I wish would have happened. I would love to read John 3.30 uh, and, and read about how easy then life got for John. But the problem is you could actually argue that uh, by many of our standards, his life got worse once he made that statement. See, what happens is he calls out a government official uh, for the sin that this guy commits, and then he gets put in prison for speaking truth out about it. He gets put in prison for uh, he must increase, I must decrease kind of mindset. Then in prison, he doesn't miraculous, miraculously get freed uh, the way Peter did, for example. He dies in prison. He gets beheaded just for fun after that government official had too much to drink at a party. That's not the way uh, to live your best life now, right? <laughs> that is not the way to live the good life that we kind of ex expect to have happen when we put Jesus as the Lord and leader of our life. That's the fate of a guy who lived his mindset with the he must increase, I must decrease mentality. And that's challenging for me. That's challenging uh, for me this morning in 21st century America because uh, many times we come to Jesus and become a Christian with the expectation that we'll get closer to the good life as a result. But then I'm faced with the question of, am I willing to give up my definition of the good life for his definition of the good life? Am I willing in my mind to say, I have this plan, but I'm willing to lay it aside for God's definition of the good life for me, for me? See, our heads get all tangled up with the what ifs. And we say, if this is true, then that can't be true. And what John reminds me of this morning, and hope he reminds you of, is that if we just say, I trust you, God. I trust you, God. I'm going to put Jesus first. I'm going to have him increase in my life while I decrease. And whatever happens, happens. See, even though John died, death is swallowed up in victory. We just sang about it a little bit ago, uh, you know, that he just can speak a word and life can be brought out of death and light can be brought out of darkness. And John says, until my breath runs dry, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say that the place where we have the most concrete definition of a plan uh, and a purpose of, for the good life is when we first become adults when we first become adults. Uh, so maybe that plan is to get married and to have kids. Maybe that plan is to have a career uh, or to use your newfound freedom to travel the world and to, to see new sights. Um, whatever it may be, uh, our hearts are completely intertwined uh, or interwoven with that plan that we have when we uh, set out our life. Our hearts are interwoven with this idea of the good life. And there's a story found in the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful story about how two women named Naomi and Ruth, they set out in life with dreams and a plan for how God should direct them. 
But when they disagree with God, one lets tragedy destroy her heart, while the other lets God heal her heart. It's an incredible story of uh, two diverging paths, potentially, with our lives. If I'm honest with myself, the first thing I do when I disagree with God is I take my heart back. I say, you know what, God? If this is the way my life is going to be, then I'm just going to shut myself in. I'm going to have my heart hardened. I'm not going to care for people the way you want me to. I'm not going to love people. I'm not going to say yes to your will to go serve people. My heart's going to be shut in because I have to protect it now because my will and my plan hasn't been accomplished. But Naomi and Ruth are an incredible incredible story of how that can't happen. In fact, when we try to protect our heart, we end up uh, hardening it to the point of no return. See, uh, a young Naomi gets married to a man named Elimelech. Elimelech. And you know how it is with a bride. A bride plans her wedding, plans her future, dreams every detail out and living color. Uh, and there's so much potential uh, as a bride begins to plan uh, not only her, her wedding, but also her life. Naomi's in that situation, but shortly after uh, she begins to dream those dreams, uh, she has a couple kids, uh, and life doesn't go her way. The plan that she has laid out just isn't set up for her. A few years after having two sons, um, a famine in Israel leaves them afraid that they're going to die. And so instead of facing this famine in Israel, they escape, they flee. They go to a place called Moab, where there's uh, more water and more food. But sometime after arriving in Moab to escape death, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And the text doesn't tell us what he dies of or or the the situation behind it all. We just know that they tried to to flee Israel to escape death, but found death in Moab. Her two sons then marry Moabite women, which probably isn't the best thing, isn't part of the plan for Naomi, but hey, at least they're married, at least they're happy, uh, at least kind of life goes on. Uh, And after they marry those Moabite women, uh, needless to say, Naomi says, Life hasn't gone the way I planned it. Can anybody else relate? Can anyone else relate to life not going the way you planned? The famine in her home country is severe. In fact, she's there for 10 years in Moab. And sometime during those 10 years, things go from bad to worse because her two sons die in Moab as well, leaving her a widow and having to go through the incredible pain of burying two children. When the the famine is finally over and she goes back home to Israel, uh, she's left with a completely different life than she had planned. She leaves Israel uh, with a husband and two kids and incredible dreams. She returns to Israel with no husband, no kids, one daughter-in-law, one one of the daughters-in-law stayed in Moab. The other one came with Naomi. And the situation and circumstances of life have left her bitter. In fact, her friends uh, see her coming home and say, hey, is that Naomi? Is that you? Naomi means pleasant uh, in the Hebrew language. Hey, is that pleasant? Is that Naomi? And she says, nope, not anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitterness. She says, the things that I used to think were pleasant, the dreams that I had, the, the way that my heart was pleasant in life and toward people has been changed to bitterness. All I have left of the dreams that I had in my life are these broken pieces, these shattered pieces of my heart. And it's left me bitter. It's left me bitter. Do you see what's happened here? 
Naomi has allowed her disagreement with God and the pain of life to change her very identity. Her very identity, no longer is she Naomi, but she's Mara. No longer is she pleasant, but she's bitter. And you probably can't blame her, can you? Not many of us here would stand in judgment over Naomi. Just look at what's happened with her life. I mean, the dream she started off with had been taken away from her one by one. And she says, I used to be pleasant and now I'm bitter. The, the things in life uh, that are just too much for me to handle have brought me to this place and I just can't take it. Just the fact that she's standing at the end of the the book is a testament to the faithfulness of God and his grace. Uh, But her daughter-in-law, Ruth, shows us what it looks like to guard your heart in the midst of this pain. It'd be tragic for me to say, hey, Naomi, um, she shouldn't have let that, the things in life make her bitter, so let's move on to something different. No, anybody would, anybody would be bitter. Life is is tragic and life is hard and and the dreams that we have when they're shattered, we're questioning, God, why? Why couldn't you do things the way I wanted you to or the way at least I hoped that you would? Ruth, uh, in an amazing uh, turn of events, says this. She says, I could go back to Moab. I could go back to my gods. I could go back to my old way of life. But Naomi, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you. Uh, When Naomi tries to convince her that her old way of life would be easier and happier for her, listen to how Ruth responds. It's not up in your notes, uh, but I'm going to read it. It's Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, what's Ruth saying here in this moment? She's telling Naomi that she is committed to her and to her God, no matter what it costs her. Ruth is saying, I will not let my heart become bitter. I will not go back to my old plan and my old way of life because I've seen too much of the goodness of God. I've seen too much faithfulness and I've trust him too much. Even though life hasn't gone as planned, there's no other side of my if, right? I'm not saying if life gets easier, I'll serve God. I'm not saying if things get better for me, then God can have my heart. Ruth is saying, he has my heart no matter what, no matter what comes my way. And the truth of the matter is, it's a heart like that that God begins to invest in. It's a heart like that that God says it's soft enough to move. And you may know the story of Ruth, you may not, uh, but through Ruth uh, comes David, King David, and through David comes Jesus, our Messiah. And there's a lot of theology in that. That's for another sermon, another time there for sure. Uh, But the point of the matter is that when life is difficult for me, my first response is bitterness. It's bitterness. But if I can say, God, I know that you are good. In the pain, in the hurt, in the trial, I know uh, that I can trust you no matter what may be on the other side, then God can take my heart. He can use it. And my situation might not get better. In fact, it might get worse, but I'm left with a situation of saying that he must increase and I must increase. If it means that my heart is protected, I can say he must increase and I must increase. 
if life has left you more bitter than pleasant this morning, I want to encourage you. There's a place that you can be restored. There's a place that you can be restored. Psalm uh, 61 verse 2 uh, says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock, to the place that is higher than myself. What I believe that, that Psalm is saying, it's a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of the good news of Jesus Christ. See, the, the Bible doesn't say, you know what you do if you feel like your heart's getting bitter? Just try harder. Just do better. Just don't let it get bitter. What scripture says is that there's a place to run to when you know you can't do anything to, to begin to crack that hardened heart that time and, and circumstance has allowed. But if you bring it to me, I will do it. Jesus says, if you bring it to me, I will do the work that you can't do. That's the gospel. See, when we disagree with God, we can cognitively have a mindset in our, in our heads that we're going to make the right choice or not make the right choice. And we can say in our hearts, it can become bitter or it can become pleasant. I'm going to allow Jesus to do the work that I can't do. But there's a third aspect of our lives when we do come to him uh, that gets impacted in a very, very subtle in a sneaky way, and that's our hands. That's our hands. There's a great story in Joshua chapter 5 that takes place right before the Israelites are going out to uh, uh, fight the battle of Jericho. It's the first battle as they begin to, to fight for the promised land. And Joshua uh, is walking along. He's preparing for this battle, uh, and he comes in contact with this guy. Before he can uh, he can get the battle, God begins to prepare his head and his heart and his hands. He comes, he comes across this guy. He's a man of war. It's this big dude with a sword in his hand. And God wants to check the motivation for why Joshua is battling in the first place. And so he says this, Joshua chapter 5, 13 and 14. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. <laughs> what? Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. What, what does that even mean? But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. If I'm Joshua, I might be tempted to reply with something like, that's not an answer, dude. <laughs> you can't say no to the question that I asked you. I asked you if you are for me or for my adversary. I gave you two choices, okay? I gave you two choices. You had to pick one. Heck, you could have even said neither. But no is not the right answer to the question that I've asked. Have you ever said that to God? Have you ever said, you're not allowed to answer me that way, God? <laughs> Here are your choices. You've got two choices, God. You can do this one or you can do that one. You can pick one, right? And God says, no, no. I'm not going to uh, submit to your two choices because that's not the question you should be asking. Are you for me or, for, or are you for my adversaries? Now, what on earth is happening here? Now, I believe that this is a theophany. This is where God shows up in the Old Testament biblical narrative and what I believe Joshua is in essence saying to God is this, before I listen to you, before I know if I have to cut your head off or not, I need to know if you're going to serve me or not. When you say, Lord, I'll serve you first, I need to know if you're on my side or theirs. What you're actually saying is, 
God, I will ask you into my life, but what is sovereign isn't you, it's my goals. If I need to know, God, are you for me before I serve him, then I'm not asking to serve him, am I? I'm asking God to serve my goals. I'm asking God to say, hey, listen, if you're for me, we can hang out. If you're for me, I'll serve you. But if you're not for me, then we're going to have to go to battle. We're going to have to fight it out. He says, I want you in my life, but I want to be the master, and I want God, you, to be the servant. And God says, it doesn't work that way. God says, no, (laughs) no, you're asking the wrong question. As soon as I say, I will obey if, I will do what you want me to do if, I will serve if, on the other side of your if is your real reward, and you're only going to use God as a servant to get there. And God in his sovereignty says, no, it's not going to work that way. It's not going to work that way. When John says he must increase and I must decrease, he's saying that he doesn't come to Jesus to achieve a better life. In fact, John recognizes uh, that Jesus may very well call him to something that would decrease his life. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Here's the beautiful part of that attitude. That the gospel is the good news that Jesus already made that declaration to his father before we ever could. He doesn't just ask us to hold to a posture of he must increase, I must decrease without first doing it himself. And as a result of that attitude, as a result of that heart toward his father, now when we say he must increase, I must decrease, it comes with a promise, a very special promise. See, when Jesus left his throne in heaven to come down uh, to earth, he did it to accomplish the will of his Father. He did not to uh, be served, but to serve. Not to uh, condemn the world, but to save it. He was doing the will of his Father. But even though Jesus was the Son of God, he was fully human and fully divine, there came a night in which he, just like us, wondered if it was worth it. He wondered... Do I want to live my life still with a he must increase, I must decrease kind of attitude? That night for Jesus was the night that he would be betrayed by one of his followers and the next day hung on a cross by nails that pierced his arms and pierced his legs. He was praying in a garden called Gethsemane when he said, Father, if there be any other way that we can do this thing, If there's any other way to accomplish your will without the torture of death, I want it. If there's any other way that I could increase in this moment without your uh, will being changed, I want it. But then he said this, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In In other words, he said, nevertheless, whatever you would call me to do, I want you to increase. I want you to be first. I want you to be foremost. And friends, because Jesus took that attitude before we ever could, as he lived the perfect life that we never could and died the sinless death that we deserved, suddenly the decision to trust him with our lives comes with a promise. See, when we say, you know what? Things aren't lining up the way I want them to, God. God, I disagree with you uh, in this area or in that area. We can say, you know what, God? There's hope for me, I know, because Jesus already did the work that I could, I could never do. 
Jesus did the, the work. And so the assurance is this, even if death is the end result in this moment, I'm gonna be forever linked to Jesus. For eternity, I'm gonna spend uh, my eternity, all my days with God, with Jesus in a place called heaven. Not because of the work I did, not because I had the right mindset, not because I had the softest heart in the room, and not because I worked with my hands as hard as I possibly could, but because Jesus did the work that I can never do. And there's hope this morning for the person who can't see past. Yeah, give God, a, give God praise for that. Give God praise for the work that he did. There's hope. There's hope this morning uh, for the one that sees the roadmap of their life and says, you know what, God? I would have taken this route, but instead I'm going this way. And I don't know why you're allowing that to happen. There's hope for the person today uh, that, that says, you know what? I can't see the other side of my if, but I'm gonna lay it down for whatever it is that God wants for my life. At Centerway Church, where, where I serve, we believe that the text requires something of us every time. That we can't just look at the word of God and think, oh, that's nice, and then go about uh, our day and walk away without applying it to our lives. And so uh, I have an application question this morning uh, as we uh, transition to another time of worship that I want us to consider. And it goes like this. What needs to decrease in your life? What needs to decrease in my life? What needs to decrease? What is it that you have made more important than God's plan for your head and your heart and your hands? What is it that is sovereign in your life that you say, if this happens, then I'm walking away? Thankfully, the gospel declares that because of Jesus, it's safe to give God whatever you have. It's safe to give whatever is on the other side of your if. He may deconstruct your version of the good life, but I promise you uh, that he will take the broken pieces of that life, the broken pieces of your heart and reshape them into the image of his son. Can we bow our heads and hearts this morning? As we go before the Lord, we're going to have the opportunity to respond to the word with a, a time of worship and then Pastor Randy's going to come and uh, just kind of close our service out and challenge you with a, an invitation to, to follow Jesus. But as that happens, I would love for us to take a, a, a real good and honest look at our own hearts, our own lives. Maybe we've been confused about why God does what he does and today's the day that you want to trust him for the very first time. Cognitively, you're making that decision. Maybe you're saying, yeah, the, the things in my life have caused my heart to become bitter. I used to be so pleasant, but if I'm honest, my heart is bitter and it's starting to get hard. And maybe you're saying, you know what? I thought that I was gonna work hard and do the things that I wanted to do, but first I wanna submit to God my hands, the work of my hands. I want God uh, to, to be lifted up with these hands and I want him to increase as I decrease. Wherever you find yourself today, I encourage you to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we continue on in our service. I'm going to ask you to stand, please. 
We're going to close off our worship with our final worship song of our set. And uh, as we do that, we have our intercessors that are here tonight or this morning to pray for anybody for whatever need. You don't have to be a member at Word of Life to be prayed for. So if you have any need whatsoever, you just come down and just give them a little bit of a tidbit. Battling cancer, whatever, whatever the issue is. And let them pray over you. Let God do a miracle work in your life. Listen, this is a big, this is a big deal. It was an excellent, excellent message, Eric. Thank you. And uh, this is a big deal to let God always take preeminence. He always has to be exalted on high. Because he's God, and he loves us, and he's got a plan for us. So if you have any need at all, you come on down while we do this last song. And uh, don't leave yet, please. We ask you to just hold off just another three minutes, and we'll let you go. Go ahead.